you are listening to Black Star Docs, a collective of female physicians of African descent coming together to share knowledge from our various medical specialties as well as from life. Listen in as we have real and relatable discussions on health, wellness, and lifestyle in a way only us ladies can do. Follow us on Instagram at Black Star Docs and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Cheers. All right. So it's Minority Health Month and we can't let the month go by without speaking to our audience about, you know, the issues and and whatnot. I mean, this is something that we've talked about quite a bit among ourselves. and, And I think people need to hear from us, right? There's lots of information on the internet, but I think that we have an opportunity to really empower people. So yeah, let's talk. What is, what, is the, what is the problem? You know, we talk about minority health. Is there really an issue? Are we looking at genetics issue? What, what are some thoughts? What are we thinking? Well, I think as far as the United States is concerned, when we talk about what's traditionally considered to be racial differences, particularly, let's say, in outcomes for almost any disease state or illness, we've come to learn that it's really not race that we're talking about, we're Mm -hmm. talking often about social determinants of health, you know, which kind Mm -hmm. of directly connect to race. But for instance, there's no genetic reason per se that we should be having disparate outcomes when it comes to things like infant mortality or maternal mortality or, you know, even cardiovascular disease, for instance, but perhaps things like access to care access to fresh food, exposure to environmental pollutions, and frankly, you know, of course, how you're treated once you're within the system based on your race is really what we're really talking about, right? So I I do think it's important to kind of separate out the genetics from the social determinant. There are clearly some genetic issues that may, you know, have a proclivity for people of African descent, for instance, but that's not what's driving this. Right. Um, you know, it's the stuff that we can actually change and intervene on. And as you're saying that, as I was listening to you, this this topic is quite triggering, right? Because we we fall within the minority group, but I don't even have to look far. We moved to a community that's historically been a black community and it's changing, which is, you know, a sad thing as well, because People are are getting displaced and what that means for their health overall. But I look around my community and we don't even have a grocery store, but literally within walking distance from my home, there's a place where people can go and buy guns, you know? (laughs) Mm. So food deserts, right? Right. Food deserts, pharmacy deserts. I mean, that's that's a real thing. I've also lived in a food Mm. desert. And having, you know, kind of grown up in a community where there was a lot more privilege, the same grocery store brand, you know, you kind of have the gourmet version in the suburbs and you come to the same brand in the inner city, in my case, inner city, Baltimore. And I would see things like rotting produce on the shelves, something Mm. that I had actually never seen in an American grocery store before. So, you know, that, of course, does not promote health (laughs) or healthy eating. But right. yeah, these are real things that large segments of the population have to contend with. And um, frankly, communities are also isolated. It's not easy to gain access 
to other areas, you know, to even go to a better grocery store or pick up medications from a pharmacy, et cetera. So yeah, there are lots of infrastructure challenges as well. And then also just even the expense, right? So it's when you're talking about food deserts and let's say you actually get to the grocery store and you're purchasing those vegetables, Mm. you have to feed a family of four or six, Mm. the cost of vegetables versus a box of cereal it's much cheaper to feed a, a whole family with box foods versus vegetables. Uh, um, and also being yeah. thinking about the convenience, you know, chopping up vegetables versus just popping it in the oven or the microwave, you know, just because of time. So right. that's a, that's a whole, it's a lot, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, a similar analogy, you know, um, Nana, just like to talk about can be drawn with, you know, access to medicine in America in general. You know, we, you, you have those who can afford insurance, so can have primary care versus those who have to piecemeal it, you know, go to the ER and get a big bill for every little thing. And mm. that also plays into, you know, how people are accessing it, how they're paying for it in, in, in the long run, how it affects um, the outcomes on their overall health. Right. And when you think about why is it that people do not have time, why is it that people are within certain income groups compared to others, then you you go back to, you know, the term that a lot of people have a hard time accepting, but systemic racism plays a huge role, right? Where some families have to get two to three jobs just to make ends meet at the end of the month. And so, yeah, they're not going to have as much time. Of course, they're not going to have money that they're going to think, oh, let me put this towards insurance. I need to get stuff to eat by the end of the day anyway. But the interesting thing is that when we look at health disparities, though, it's not just the low income bracket, right? Even when you look at people who've gotten college degrees or even doctorate degrees, there's still a disparity. So what's going on there? So that, as we were kind of having this discussion about the very real systemic racial problems that we have kind of built into the infrastructure of so many aspects of our lives in this country. Yeah, there was a Medicare study some years back, which looked at the rate of bypass surgery. So basically you have significant heart disease, blockages in the heart's arteries, and you need to have bypass surgery to correct it. When they looked at black versus white patients who were on Medicare, this, you know, despite balancing for things like education level, socioeconomic status, and basically making the playing field level, Black patients were still being offered uh, bypass at a rate extremely significantly lower than whites. Mm. And there's no reason for that, right? There's mm. no medical reason for it. Mm. We know that, for instance, if you have heart failure and you are Black, you come into the hospital, you are more likely to be admitted to a medical team than a cardiology team for the management of your heart failure. Wow. Yes, we know that this is a a stat maybe from about two years ago. We've made a lot of advances in replacing aortic valves. This is the the main valve that's taking blood from your heart and delivering it, delivering the blood to the rest of your body. We can do this in the cath lab. It's a non-invasive procedure as such. 91% of the recipients of this what we call percutaneous aortic valve or TAVR, 91% of the recipients are white in the United States. Mm. How, 
right? You know, yeah, so there's, really there's not a skew in the demographics of the disease itself, right? So it's hmm. not that it only afflicts white people. So we have a problem in terms of when we see patients, somehow our implicit biases and how we see them isn't affecting how we assess them and ultimately mm. how we treat them. And then that mm. can affect how they do later or their outcomes. Mm. Mm. Okay, so I've, I've actually seen, I've, I've read that when Black patients see Black doctors, their outcomes are better. Now, is that just in one instance or is that across the board? And, and what do we think is the difference there? Has anybody else read that? I've definitely read about concordance. I'm going to I'm going to let someone else speak because I've been talking a lot, but I think it <laughs> extends beyond blacks as an ethnic group. But yes, mm. that ethnic concordance can improve outcomes mm. in, in patients across different disease states and specialties. But I'll let someone else talk. Yeah, regardless of, you know, whether you we believe it or not, everybody just feels more comfortable with who they, per- they perceive to be, their, you know, a member of their race. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's just that level of comfort that comes. And as I feel like Black people, when we go to the hospitals, or when we go to any professional settings and we see people that look like us, you know, we, we get we're more comfortable, we're more likely to open up we're more likely mm-hmm. to discuss what really brought us there, which is why we always say representation matters. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the rate at which we're recruiting and graduates, medical graduates um, on a racial level, I think I just saw a graph that said, uh, you know, the rate of African-American graduates, it, it, it remains steady and other mm-hmm. races are kind of increasing. So we're getting mm-hmm. into this space where the amount of doctors that look like us that our patients see, the rate is not increasing. And so they're seeing other races. And there might be a, a little bit of a, a dissociation there when you see other people that you perceive as not you. And so you're not as comfortable. You don't let your guard down and you'll get to the root of the problem. Yeah, but minoritized po- populations actually do have good reason to sort of not trust the medical system, right? I mean, that's something, that's a whole nother topic on its own, but historically there's, there is something there, but you know, this, we could talk about the problems all day and it's very sobering, but, and we know they exist, but what can we give to our patients, you know, that will empower them and let them know that despite the system, despite these issues that we've talked about, there's something that they can do. I like to think that there's hope. Is there something that our patients can do? Well, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, coming from a dermatological perspective, mm-hmm. patients always say, oh, you know, I didn't feel comfortable with this doctor just because culturally, you know, you understand, you know, we have the same hair, or we have the same skin and, and certain conditions present differently on skin of color. So obviously, the provider has to be a little bit more astute because, you know, red doesn't look the same on white skin versus brown skin. But anyway, that's a, that's a totally different uh, subject there. But, you know, in terms of culturally, you know, I think it's important, like when a, a patient comes into the exam room, we don't just address the, okay, I'm going to give you X medication for your skin condition, but we talk to them and we educate them 
on nutrition. We talk to them and educate them on sleep and balance and, you know, just give them more of a holistic approach. I think, you know, doctors, we just need to spend more time and really get to know the individual a little bit more and make sure that they're compliant because compliant, being compliant on a regimen is key in order to continue to be healthy. And unfortunately, with our healthcare system, sometimes there is there's just not enough time. Right. But we as but I think we took a, the the oath that you know we want to make sure that everyone's health is optimized, and we mm-hmm. just need to make sure we try to spend time. And it does require that you might have to come in multiple times in order for us to achieve that goal. Right. I like that we're we're speaking to ourselves and you know what we could do better for our patients. Cause I know some of the people who listen to us are actually doctors, you know, and people in healthcare who can, who can make a difference from that side. What about the patients? What can they do to ensure that they get better outcomes? You know, I tell my patients, this is a two way street. You mm-hmm. give us, you get what you give is what you get back. Right. So you make mm-hmm. every effort to meet your provider or your physician wherever they are, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their race and um, cultural background, because at the end of the day, you need that good health care. You need to be seen for your problems, right? So you mm-hmm. go in the, with an open mind. You present you, you keep present and keep present, just like Nana said. It might take a couple of visits for everything to be resolved. However, right. if you're not getting the results, don't be afraid to move on to the next person. And this right. could be of any way. You could have a physician that looks just like you, but you don't get the right health care. You know you're not getting what you need. Just move mm. on to the next person. Just keep an open mind for the next person because at the end of the day, what's important is that access, however you get it, however you keep mm. healthy. So, yeah, I think that for patients, number one, trust is very important. You're going to have to trust the physician. We've all taken mm-hmm. that oath, right? Whether we're of mm-hmm. the same ethnic background or not, as our doctor, all doctors have taken an oath to take care of the patient. Just be, trust your physician and be open and share. I've heard so many mm. people say that, oh, well, when I go to the doctor, I want them to find out what's wrong with me. I don't say anything and <laughs> they better find out. I hear it a lot. I even heard oh, someone preach, uh, preach about it. That, hey, when uh-huh. I go to the doctor, the do- but the doctor is not God. Okay? Right. As a physician, I need you to tell me what's going on. I need your symptoms. Uh, and then I'm going to examine you and combine that and your history to come up with what is wrong with you. So be right. open-minded and share freely with your physician, number one. Number two, you know, if you do not understand something, ask. Don't be afraid mm-hmm. to ask. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to frown upon that. Yeah. I like patients who take their own health into their hands and, uh, you know, educate themselves. And then number three, you know, make sure that whatever plan you come up with your doctor, if your doctor says do X, Y, and Z, please do your best to do X, Y, and Z. A lot of times, for instance, I'll give a medication and it's a trial. So I'm expecting to get feedback from you as a physician. And if it doesn't work, don't say, oh, this doctor doesn't know what they're doing. I'm just going to move on. No, reach out to your doctor and let your doctor know this is what's going on. This is not working, but there has to be trust. There has to be open dialogue. There has to be communication. 
It's a partnership. It's a very good point. Yeah. It's definitely right. a two at the end of the day, we need to look at it as such. It's not just that you're going and receiving a service. It's a true partnership. And I can't under underscore how important that is because sometimes there may not be a great fit or maybe your first visit is maybe not what you expect. I mean, I think it's fair to give people a trial, but if you feel like this is going to be someone where it's difficult for you to foster a relationship, you need to move on. Now, so many right. people, I think, get discouraged and then just stop seeing doctors altogether mm. when they have a bad experience or an experience that does not meet their expectations. And that is a very common story that I saw, you know, as a specialist seeing cardiac patients. And that does nothing. You are not hurting that doctor by not taking right. care of yourself, right? right? You're only hurting yourself. So even um, when we face those kind of challenges, and I've been there as a patient as well, maybe it's not the greatest fit. Yeah, you don't stop there. They're not the only person, you know, that you possibly could see in most cases, not encouraging people to doctor shop per se, but certainly seek the long-term partnership with your physician that would lead to the best health for you. Right. Exactly. I'd rather my patients keep an open mind, but then, you know, be empowered to move on to somebody who may be a better fit for you. And let's face mm -hmm. it, you know, the minority population in America, we, do, we face so many barriers um, in trying to access this healthcare system. There, there are studies out there that say that medical students and uh, residents have a perception that Black people don't feel pain the same way as um, the white patients do. And we have a higher pain tolerance as in we don't need pain medicine or we don't need as much pain medicine. And so, yeah, there are definite, there are definite barriers like that. And when you've seen a new provider, you get a feel, you get a, you get a gestalt for whether you're going to get along with this patient, whether they have any, um, they're holding some prejudices and stereotypes. If that is, that is what you encounter, be, be honest, be polite, and find a provider who feel that barrier with and move on. Yeah. And then prevention, right? There's, you know, a lot of people are not, are not following their health plan as far as routine things that they can do to maintain health, right? Because um, we've talked about the things that people can do if they're not well and seek help or find themselves within the system. But what about prevention? Simple things. Dr. Nana, you, you actually are a kind of wellness doctor. And do you want to speak to that some? Yeah. So it's so interesting that you mentioned it. So from a dermatology standpoint, one is doing skin checks all the time. So we always advocate for all our patients to come in and get your skin checked and look for your moles because what happens is in skin of color patients, when they get diagnosed later with a later stage, their prognosis of skin cancer is much later because they haven't mm -hmm. gone to a dermatologist or a provider because a mole was changing, it started to bleed, they ignored it. And then all of a sudden now, you know, it's like a stage four melanoma or the skin, basal cell is affecting one of their nerves or something like that. So I always advocate like check your skin every couple of months, making sure that all the growths are always staying the same. 
but also prevention is, I think it all comes down to nutrition, 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 and exercise. You know, I think a lot of us are, we alluded to earlier, the food deserts and eating more boxed foods than, or processed foods rather than eating non-processed foods. And, you know, we don't exercise. We're not taking health into our matters. So if we eat, if we eat better and we start just even walking five times a week, just for 30 minutes, that's, that's so key. That's so important. And that will increase or prevent any kind of chronic diseases. Dr. Bernice, do you, do you want to talk about the colonoscopy issue? Oh goodness. I've had this conversation several times (laughs) with my black male patients. Yes. Um, You know, do you want to speak to that as a primary care doctor? Yes, I think it's very important, especially in African-Americans, right? Our rate, you know, getting colonoscopy seems like we're getting, we're seeing more and more younger African-Americans coming down with colon cancer. So screening for us is so important. Now we can start screening at 45 years old. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing I've realized is that My men patients tend to always confuse a prostate exam with colonoscopy. So I always try to explain, okay, colonoscopy is different. Both women and men can get colonoscopy. That's when we put a little camera, a little, little small tube. We're going to give you medication to feel comfortable. The GI doctor will. And then, you know, you prep before you drink all your, you know, stuff to cleanse you out. A couple of days before you come in. You know, a little camera goes in and we look for, you know, polyps or little growths that can develop into cancer, right? So at 45, we'll start doing this. It's very, very important. Nowadays, there's the color guard where you submit a stool sample. And and also there's a fit test, which is the car test that can be done annually. So you don't even have to do the actual colonoscopy unless you have a family history or personal history of some type of polyps or growths in the colon. But it's so important that we keep up with these. I want to put in, since I'm primary care, talking about in women getting our mammograms, you know, Mm -hmm. getting your pap smears. Now they're Mm -hmm. three to five years. They're not every year but every three to five years. But if let's say you are, you know, under 30 years or 21 to 29, it's every three years and you are tested for HPV, which can cause, you know, the high risk strains that can cause cervical cancer. And if that's positive, then you may come in sooner until that's cleared. But otherwise, you know, making sure we're getting all these things done. Don't just go to your doctor when you feel sick. But the prevention, as we always say, so cliched, but prevention Mm -hmm. is really better than cure. So if you keep up with these things, then, you know, I think with increased screening rates, we should be able to overcome some of these disparities. Nana, I did want to ask you this, though. So as I'm a primary care doctor and I make recommendations for my patients, are the dermatologists recommending that patients come in once a year for like a routine skin check? Absolutely. So everybody should definitely get a skin check once a year. And I think, you know, what what we're noticing is people say, well, black doesn't crack. Yeah, it cracks. It cracks at a little bit. It cracks a little later and things pop up. You know, we want to make sure that all our moles are not significantly changing. You want to monitor them. So definitely get a skin screening once a year. It's so imperative. And also, you know, the primary care doctors can also take a look, can also screen too, you know, looking at the palms, the soles and, and taking images as well. If there are no 
dermatologists nearby, or maybe they don't take certain, you know, insurance and so forth. So providers could do that as well. I was going to say that that's why these annual visits are so important with your primary care doctor to get you a full physical where we can inspect your skin and look at everything, look in your ears, eyes, do all that so that we can catch things and refer you to the appropriate specialties to take care of. Mm. Great. What about resources? So what are some things we can equip our audience with? Are there any resources that they can seek out as far as, you know, helping them when they're finding trouble, be it in the hospital or can anyone speak to that? So I primarily work in the emergency room and there's always a a patient advocate that you can call on to talk. So if you're you know, you, you feel, feel like you're not being heard or you're encountering a barrier, you can always use one of those. And for kids too, I tell moms, we have child life. So if your kid is going through a scary procedure, there's child life, there's resources to help the kid so that they're not afraid to get the test or do the procedures that they need. What mm-hmm. I find, and this is just my personal experience, is that when it comes to minority children, they're not being offered these things, but they're not being offered the Nintendo Switches and the Game Boys and even the puzzles and the TV remote, things that make them less anxious. And and all of those are available. So if you're in the hospital and you feel like you're not getting heard, your questions are not being answered, you're not getting through, there are advocates that you can call on to help. And I would say don't wait until things start going sideways before you seek out the advocate. If you feel like you're going to have a barrier, the moment you get there, go ahead and ask the nurses to, you know, get a patient care advocate for you who will be on board and kind of help you along the way. I think you'll make everything smoother. Sometimes it's, you know, more of a communication issue. And I think it's better to nip it in the butt before things go haywire. Another thing I wanted to add to the child life is child life is not only for children who are there for a procedure, but let's say you as a parent, if you're there and you need assistance, you have children with you, child life can also come in and kind of help explain things to your children or make the whole, you know, if you're having a procedure, whatever it is, but child life can be there for your child as well if you are the, the patient. Now, we know a lot of our patients go to Dr. Google. So beyond Dr. Google, are there any other resources, maybe in the outpatient setting, you know, as people are navigating the healthcare system or their disease process that can inform them and give them some clues? Because, you know, we know, we know what to expect, right? So if you and I go see your doctor, I know when, when things aren't right, but a lot of our patients really don't don't have that kind of that level of health literacy. So how can they ensure that they are getting information or you know what they're being told is right or how can they feel comfortable anything? I, mean, I think one we should make sure that we are understanding and are on the same page with whoever is taking care of us, right? So mm. I think that's where the after visit summary really comes into play. What is the diagnosis? Mm. What is the plan for treatment? What is mm-hmm. the plan for follow up? Realistically, we know that time is an issue, particularly, I think, in the outpatient setting, right? So you may not have as much time as you would like 
to fully explain things, although that is what's most optimal. Some good resources, I think, you know, we can talk about Mayo Clinic. I, you know, they tend to present very balanced information that is, I think, very digestible for mm-hmm. the average patient. NIH also has resources. You could kind of go to the NIH site and pretty much put in almost any disease state and come up with varying degrees of information, as well as the CDC. Mm-hmm. But the CDC information for me is actually probably the least technical and at times most accessible for patients. So to mm-hmm. me, those are really good resources. There are numerous resources on the internet. Many of them are not great for patients and cause more mm-hmm. confusion, anxiety, and stress than anything else. The other question is, why are you seeking the information? What are you looking for, right? Mm-hmm. So your, your search should be tailored for that. I don't expect the patient to want to understand the deep pathophysiology for any disease process, but maybe you're wanting to know what you can do from a lifestyle standpoint to help to manage your disease, right? right. And that's where things like maybe patient advocacy groups also come in. They discuss things like, you know, new treatments that are coming out for any, you know, that particular disease. Specialists who are very familiar with that disease and have an astounding level of expertise, as well as how to live with it, for instance. So patient advocacy advocacy groups are also a great resource. Wow. Thank you. That I'm so glad you said that. I can't tell you the number of times that I have discussed a plan with a patient And in that time that I have extra time, I say to them, all right, tell me back what our plan is. And they're looking at me with a blank face, like, oh, yeah. (laughs) So then I'm like, okay, now you know I'm going to quiz you. Let's do this again. Your blood pressure is not well controlled. We're increasing the dose of this. You're going to do this and we're going to do this. All right, what did I say? You know, so that that is very, very important. And then knowing what is going on with you. I see so many new patients come to see me and they have no clue what they've been diagnosed with, what they're taking. I'm like, honey, you need to take control of your health. Your doctor's not going to be with you 24-7. You need to know what is going on. You need to know what you're taking. You don't know why. You know, if you've been told that you have chronic kidney disease, you need to know that. So if you end up in, you know, Arkansas in the ER over there, you know, and some things about you can say, hey, I've been told I have, you know, chronic kidney disease. Well, ER usually, they'll check your labs. So you end up in the urgent care. You can say, hey, my doc says I have chronic kidney disease. Is this medication okay for that? You know, you got to know yourself. Okay, I'm going to get off the whole ledge no, here. I mean, if, you, if you can't remember all the so big true. words, utilize your record, the records department in your hospital, so wherever you ask, you, you get mm. your health care. Go mm. request for your records. You don't even have yeah. to know what's in there. Just bring it right. along with you. Very good point. And keep something in your wallet, right? Mm. You know, Mm. that small card, my best patients used to do this. So a small card Mm. that has your diagnoses on, hypertension, Mm. high cholesterol, coronary disease, whatever it is, and your Mm. medications, the doses, Mm. how frequently you take them. If you've had any procedures, the card associated with whatever device you have had implanted in your body, because you wouldn't believe People are walking around with significant implants, whether it's something orthopedic, something related to the heart. When you ask them a question about it, they don't know. It's in your body, right. man. You know, you, you got to right. know what <laughs> you got to know what that is. So right. that's important when you interact with someone who does not know you well, like like you mentioned, whether it's an emergency situation or simply an interruption in care where you're you're now meeting 
you know, new new healthcare providers that they're not guessing because that guessing right. can also impact your health. So significantly, that's a, yeah, that's a small thing, and you can always review that list when you go to see your PCP or your doctor or your specialist. Review that list with them. Make sure that it's up to date and current. Whenever you change your medicines or get a new diagnosis, mm-hmm. that list needs to be updated. I think, Abana, yeah. you know, now we're in this uh, area of technology, I always say take a picture because, I, you know, patients mm-hmm. come in and they're like, oh, I don't remember the name of the moisturizer or sunscreen I'm using, but, or, or they forgot to bring it in. Oh, I forgot to bring it in. I had it right on my kitchen counter before I left. But take a picture with your phone. We are, we are always on our phones all day long. Our phones are our new wallets. So take pictures of all your medications, put it in an album, take pictures of your moles. That's what I usually say, put it in an album. And that way, when you go to the doctor, pull out that album and just show them all the list of medications. You don't have to remember anything. Just Great have idea. it all in the album. Absolutely. We're on the internet all the time. And that's why I do not begrudge that to Google, because at least it gets people concerned enough to come in and come and seek some help. So, I only begrudge them when they start challenging me, though. But Dr. Google said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, again, building that rapport and that trust with your patient. Everything we're saying underscores the fact that, yes, minorities, we do have a difficult time accessing healthcare in America. And there's some real challenges historically in right now as we live in it, too. But in the end, it's the responsibility of the patient and the doctor we both have to do our part, our 50-50, to make sure that this works well. If you access the system, know what you're going in there for and know what you've been diagnosed with and what you're taking. And mm-hmm. on our part, the, the physicians and the providers, we need to work a little bit better to let go of some of these biases. You know, black people don't tolerate pain better or this person may not have enough money for this procedure and, and just work with each other so mm-hmm. we can get to a point where you know, we're being helpful to each other. Okay. I wanted to piggyback on that. So as far as I think for the most part, doctors, we're not looking at a patient say a patient can't afford a procedure because I, I want to make that clear that that's not determined by doctors, right? That is mostly your insurance and stuff. So as physicians, uh, as Tony was saying, if I'm seeing you, I'm seeing you because you're sick. My job is to take care of you. My oath is to take care of you. It's not about, I tell my patients that all the time. When they say, how much does this cost? I say, you know, my job here is to take care of you. Insurance is separate from me. I don't see what they're doing. And I'm just here for you to give you the best care possible that I can get. I wanted also to bring in that now with the CURES Act, C-U-R-E-S Act, Now, information, your medical information is yours, right? Your health Mm -hmm. information is yours. Nobody can deny you your own medical records. Know that now with EMR, most patients now have access to their own progress notes. They have access, you have access to your reports. You have access to everything in there. Your physician will kind of break down some of your results to you as well. But that is your information. You have the right to request to have you know, your medical records. So keep that in mind and know that you always have access to that. Another thing that I am doing is giving after visit summary. Your after visit summary is going to have your updated medication list. So if you tell me what you're taking, that's why I need to know as a physician, you need to know what you as a patient you are taking. Somebody might have prescribed you something elsewhere, right? right. And then I'm going to give you something else and it's going to cause a problem. So like Dr. Nana said, take a picture of your medications or 
Dr. Abna said, if you have a device, have the card with you, take a picture of it, make a list of your, your past diagnosis, present diagnosis, surgical history, all that history have with you. I have some patients, they come in without fail. They have it. My 80-year-olds, 70-year-olds will come in, they'll have all the procedures they've done and they update as they go on and they ask me to look over and add my own or make corrections where it is. So that's where you are advocating for your own health and taking your whole own health into your hands and um, collaborate with me as your physician. We work together as a partnership. And I think with that, we should be able to you know, overcome a lot of these disparities. Mm. Wow, Dr. Bernice, that was wonderful. And I think a great place to end, but definitely a conversation that we're going to have to keep having. I feel like I've left our talk today with great points that I can take in, in better care for my patients. And we really hope that our talk today has uplifted you, empowered you, and made you feel like though there are disparities, there are some things that we can do to ensure that we stay healthy. Anyone have any closing thoughts or anything to add? All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies. This was wonderful. We should do this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most definitely. Absolutely. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. You have been listening to Black Star Docs. Thank you for joining us. We hope that we made your day a bit brighter and better. Please remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode and follow us on all of our social media platforms at Black Star Docs. <laughs>